it would be as reasonable to expect a child born into an atmosphere corrupted with pestilential vapor to grow and be healthy as its spiritual life should flourish without the nutriment of the pure milk of the word and without breathing in the wholesome atmosphere of truth. The new man often remains in the dwarfish state because he is fed upon husk or he grows into a distorted shape by means of the errors which are inculcated upon him. It is of unspeakable importance that the young disciple have sound, instructive, and practical preaching to attend on. It is also of consequence that the religious people with whom he converses should be discreet, evangelical, and intelligent Christians, and that the books put into his hands should be of the right kind. There is what may be called a sectarian peculiarity in the experimental religion of all the members of a religious denomination. When it is required, in order that persons may be admitted to communion, that they publicly give a narrative of the exercises of their minds, there will commonly be observed a striking similarity. There is a certain mold into which all seem to be cast. By the way, this requisition is unwise. Few persons have humility and discretion enough to be trusted to declare in a public congregation what the dealings of God with their souls have been. When ignorant, weak, and fanciful persons undertake this, they often bring out such crude and ludicrous things as greatly tend to bring experimental religion into discredit. The practice seems also to be founded on a false principle, namely, that real Christians are able to tell with certainty whether others have religion if they hear their experience. Enthusiasts have always laid claim to this discernment of the spirits, and this enthusiasm is widely spread through some large sects. And when they meet with any professing piety, they are always solicitous to hear an account of their conviction, conversion, and so on. A free intercourse of this kind among intimate friends is no doubt profitable, but a frequent and indiscriminate disclosure of the, the secret things of the heart is attended with many evils. Among the chief is a fostering of spiritual pride, which may often be detected when the person is boasting of his humility. In those social meetings in which every person is questioned as to the state of his soul, the very sameness of most of the answers ought to render the practice suspect. Poor, weak, and ignorant persons often profess to be happy and to be full of the love of God when they know not what they say. It is wonderful how little you hear of the spiritual conflict in the account which many professors give of their experience. The people know what kind of answers is expected of them, and they come as near as they can to what is wished. And it is to be feared that many cry peace when there is no peace, and say that they are happy merely because they hear this from the lips of others. Hypocrisy is a fearful evil, and everything which has a tendency to produce it should be avoided. Among some classes of religious people, all doubting about the goodness and safety of our state is scouted as inconsistent with faith. It is assumed as indubitably true that every Christian must be assured of his being in a state of grace, and they have no charity for those who are distressed with almost perpetual doubts and fears. This they consider to be the essence of unbelief, 
For faith, according to them, is a full persuasion that our sins are forgiven. No painful process of self-examination is therefore requisite, for every believer has possession already of all that could be learned from such examination. Among others, doubting it is to be feared is too much encouraged, and serious Christians are perplexed with needless scruples originating in the multiplication of the marks of conversion, which sometimes are difficult of application, and in other cases are not scriptural but arbitrary, set up by the preacher who values himself upon his skill in detecting the close hypocrite, whereas he wounds a weak believer in ten cases where he awakens a hypocrite in one. I once heard one of these preachers, whose common mode was harsh and calculated to distress the feeble-minded, attempt to preach in a very different style. He seemed to remember that he should not bruise a broken reed, and not quench the smoking flax. A person of a contrite spirit heard the discourse with unusual comfort. But at the close the preacher resumed his harsh tone and said, Now you hypocrites will be snatching at the children's bread. On hearing which, the broken-hearted hearer felt himself addressed, and instantly threw away all the comfort which he had received. And though there might be a hundred hypocrites present, yet not one of them cared anything about the admonition. In some places, anxious inquirers are told that if they will hold on praying and using the means, God is bound to save them, as though a dead condemned sinner could so pray as to bring God under obligation to him, or could secure the blessings of the covenant of grace by his selfish legal striving. These instructions accord very much with the self-righteous spirit which is natural in us all, and one of two things may be expected to ensue. Either that the anxious inquirer will conclude that he has worked out his salvation and cry peace, or that he should sink into discouragement and charge God foolishly because he does not hear his prayers and grant him his desires. There is another extreme, but not so common among us. It is to tell the unconverted, however anxious, not to pray at all, that their prayers are an abomination to God and can answer no good purpose until they are able to pray in faith. The writer happened once to be cast into a congregation where this doctrine was inculcated. At the time of a considerable revival, when many sinners were cut to the heart and were inquiring, What must we do to be saved? He conversed with some who appeared to be under deep and awful convictions, but they were directed to use no means but to believe. They appeared to remain in a state of perfect quiescence, doing nothing but confessing the justice of their condemnation, and appearing to feel that they were entirely at the disposal of him who has mercy on whom he will have mercy. The theory, however, was not consistently carried out, for while these persons were taught not to pray, they were exhorted to hear the gospel, and were frequently conversed with by their pastor. But this extreme is not so dangerous as the former, which encourages sinners to think that they can do something to recommend themselves to God by their unbelieving prayers. The fruits of this revival, I have reason to believe, were very precious. Even among the same people and under the same minister, the exercises of the awakened in the revival are very different. In some seasons of this sort, the work appears to be far deeper and more solemn than in others. Chapter 4 
causes of diversity in experience continued, effect of temperament, melancholy, advice to the friends of persons thus affected, illustrative cases, causes of melancholy and insanity. We have before shown how the principle of spiritual life is affected in its appearance by two circumstances, the degree of vigor given to its commencement and the degree of knowledge and maturity of judgment which one may possess above another. We now come to another pregnant cause of the great variety which is found in the exercises and comforts of real Christians, and that is a difference of temperament which is so familiar and which so frequently modifies the characters as well as the feelings of men and other matters. There can be no doubt, I think, that the susceptibility of lively emotion is exceedingly different in men under the same circumstances. Persons of strong affections and ardent temperament, upon an unexpected bereavement of a beloved wife or child, are thrown into an agony of grief which is scarcely tolerable while those of a cold, phlegmatic temperament seem to suffer no exquisite anguish from this or any other cause. Not that they possess more fortitude or resignation, for the contrary may be the fact, but their susceptibilities are less acute. And this disparity appears in nothing more remarkably than in the tendency to entertain different degrees of hope or fear in similar circumstances. For while some will hope whenever there is the smallest grounds for a favorable result, others are sure to fear the worst which can possibly happen, and their apprehensions are proportioned to the magnitude of the interest at stake. Now, is it full of wonder that men's religious feelings should be affected by the same causes? When two exercised persons speak of their convictions, their sorrows and their hopes, is it not to be expected that with the same truths before their minds, those of a sanguine temperament will experience more sensible emotions, and upon the same evidence entertain more confident hopes than those of a contrary disposition? And, of necessity, the joy of the person will be much more lively than that of the other. Thus, two persons may be found whose experience may have been very similar as to their conviction of sin and exercise of faith and repentance, and yet the one will express a strong confidence of having passed from death unto life, while the other is afraid to express a trembling hope. Of these two classes of Christians, the first is the more comfortable, the latter the safer, as being unwilling to be satisfied with any evidence but the strongest. But there is not only a wide difference from this natural cause of the liveliness of the emotions of joy and sorrow, and of the confidence of the hopes entertained, but usually a very different mode of expression. Sanguine persons, from the very impulse of ardent feeling, have a tendency to express things in strong language, constantly verging on exaggeration. They are apt to use superlatives and strong emphasis as wishing to convey a full idea of their feelings, while those of a colder temperament and more timid disposition fall below the reality in their descriptions, and are cautious not to convey to others too high an idea of what they have experienced. This diversity, as a cause is permanent, characterizes the religious experience of these respective classes of Christians through their whole pilgrimage, and may be equally manifest on a dying bed. 
Hence it appears how very uncertain a knowledge of the internal state of the heart we obtain from the words and professions of serious persons. It should also serve to shake the vain confidence of those who imagine that they can decide with certainty whether another is a truly converted person merely from hearing a narrative of his religious experience. Two persons may employ the same words and phrases to express their feelings, and yet those feelings may be specifically different. Each may say, I felt a love of God shed abroad in my heart, which in the one case may be the genuine affection described in these words, while in the other it may be a mere transport of natural feeling, a mere selfish persuasion of being a favorite of heaven, or a high state of nervous exhilaration produced by physiological causes. Both these persons may be sincere according to the popular acceptation of that term, that is, both have really experienced a lively emotion, and both mean to express a simple fact, and yet the one is a real Christian, while the other may be in an unregenerate state. Another thing which ought to destroy this foolish persuasion that we can certainly determine the true spiritual condition of another person by hearing from him a narrative of his experience is that any words or phrases which can be used by a real pious man may be learned by a designing hypocrite. What is to hinder such an one from using the very language and imitating the very manner in which true Christians have been heard to relate their experience? What can prevent deceivers from catching up the narrative of godly exercises so abundantly found in religious biography and applying it to themselves as though they had the experience of these things? While only two classes of Christians have been mentioned, yet in each of these there are many subordinate divisions, to describe all of which would be tedious and not for edification. The reader can readily apply the general principles to every variety of experience modified by this cause. In the preceding remarks, the healthy constitutional temperament has alone been brought into view, but by far the most distressing cases of conscience with which the spiritual physician has to deal are owing to a morbid temperament. As most people are inclined to conceal their spiritual distresses, Few have any conception of the number of persons who are habitually suffering under the frightful malady of melancholy. With some, this disease is not permanent, but occasional. They have only periodical periodicals of deep religious depression, may be said to have their compensation for the dark and cloudy day by being favored with one of peculiar brightness in quick succession. If their gloom was uninterrupted, it would be overwhelming, but after a dark night rises a lively morning without the shadow of a cloud. This rapid and great alternation of feeling is found in those who possess what may be called a mercurial temperament. It is connected with the nervous system peculiarly excitable and exceedingly liable to temporary derangement. A rough east wind is sufficient to blow up clouds which completely obscure the cheerful sunshine of the soul, while the wholesome zephyrs as quickly drive all these gloomy clouds away. Such persons always have a stomach easily disordered, and one ounce of improper food or one too much of wholesome food is cause sufficient to derange the nerves and depress the spirits. The want of refreshing sleep or watchfulness is another cause of the same effect, and in its turn is an effect from disordered nerves. 
But physical causes are not the only ones which produce this painful state of feeling. It is often produced in a moment by hearing some unpleasant intelligence or by the occurrence of some disagreeable event. But, as was hinted, when these people of nervous temperament are relieved from a fit of depression, their sky is uncommonly free from clouds, their hopes are lively, their spirits buoyant, and nothing can trouble them. These alternations of day and night, of sunshine and darkness, must of necessity affect the feelings in regard to all matters, temporal and spiritual. For as in a dark night every object appears black, so when the mind is overcast with gloomy clouds, every view must partake of the same aspect. To many persons this description will be unintelligible, but by others it will be recognized at once as a just view of their own case. But when religious melancholy becomes a fixed disease, it may be reckoned among the heaviest calamities to which our suffering nature is subject. It resists all argument and rejects every topic of consolation from whatever source it may proceed. It feeds upon distress and despair, and is displeased even with the suggestions or offer of relief. The mind thus affected seizes on those ideas and truths which are most awful and terrifying. Any doctrine which excludes all hope is congenial to the melancholy spirit. It seizes on such things with an unnatural avidity and will not let them go. There is no subject on which it is more vain and dangerous to theorize in our religious experience. It is therefore of unspeakable importance that ministers of the gospel who have to deal with diseased consciences should have had some experience themselves in these matters. This, no doubt, is one reason why some, intended to be sons of consolation to others, have been brought through deep waters and have been buffeted by many storms before they obtained a settled peace of mind. It is a proper object of inquiry why in our day so little is heard about the spiritual troubles of which we read so much in the casuistical treatises of writers of a former age. It can scarcely be supposed that the faith of modern Christians is so much stronger than that of believers who lived in other days, that they are enabled easily so to triumph over their melancholy fears and despondency. Neither can we suppose that Satan is less busy in casting his fiery darts and in attempts to drive the children of God to despair. There is reason to fear that among Christians of the present time there is less deep spiritual exercise than in former days. And as little is said on the subject in public discourses, there may be greater concealment of the troubles of this kind than if these subjects were more frequently discussed. It is observable that all those who have experienced this sore affliction and have been mercifully delivered from it are very solicitous to administer relief and comfort to others who are still exposed to the peltings of the pitiless storm. These are the persons who feel the tenderest sympathy with afflicted consciences and know how to bear with the infirmities and waywardness which accompany a state of religious melancholy. It is also remarkable that very generally they who have been recovered from such diseases attribute no small part of their troubles to a morbid temperament of body, and accordingly in their counsels to the melancholy they lay particular stress on the regular healthy state of the body. About the close of the 17th century, Timothy Rogers, 1658 to 1728, 
a pious and able minister of London, fell into a state of deep melancholy, and such was the distressing darkness of his mind that he gave up all hope of the mercy of God, and believed himself to be a vessel of wrath, designed for destruction, for the praise of the glorious justice of the Almighty. His sad condition was known to many pious ministers and people throughout the country, who, it is believed, were earnest and incessant in their supplications in his behalf. And these intercessions were not ineffectual, for it pleased God to grant a complete deliverance to his suffering servant. And having received comfort of the Lord, he was exceedingly desirous to be instrumental in administering the same comfort to others with which he himself had been comforted. He therefore wrote several treatises which this object in view, which are calculated to be of service to those laboring under spiritual distress. One of these is entitled, Recovery from Sickness, another, Consolation for the Afflicted, and a third, A Discourse on Trouble of Mind and the Disease of Melancholy. In the preface to this last, the author gives directions to the friends of persons laboring under religious melancholy how to treat them. The substance of these I will now communicate to the reader. Quote, number one. Look upon your distress, friends, as under one of the worst distempers to which this miserable life is exposed. Melancholy incapacitates them for thought or action. It confounds and disturbs all their thoughts and fills them with vexation and anguish. I verily believe that when this malign state of mind is deeply fixed and has spread its deleterious influence over every part, it is as vain to attempt to resist it by reasoning and rational motives as to oppose a fever or the gout or pleurisy. One of the very worst attendants of this disease is the want of sleep, by which in other distresses men are relieved and refreshed. But in this disease, either sleep flies far away, or is so disturbed that the poor sufferer, instead of being refreshed, is like one on the rack. The faculties of the soul are weakened, and all their operations disturbed and clouded, and the poor body languishes and pines away at the same time. And that which renders this disease more formidable is its long continuance. It is a long time often before it comes to its height, and it is usually as tedious in its declension. It is, in every respect, sad and overwhelming, a state of darkness that has no discernible beams of light. It generally begins in the body, and then conveys its venom to the mind. I pretend not to tell you what medicines will cure it, for I know of none. I leave you to advise with such as are skilled in physic, and especially to such doctors as have experienced something of it themselves. For it is impossible to understand the nature of it in any other way than by experience. There is danger, as Richard Greenham, 1535-94, to says, that the bodily physician will look no further than the body, while the spiritual physician will totally disregard the body and look only at the mind. Number two, treat those who are under this disease with tender compassion. Remember also that you are liable to the same affliction. For however brisk your spirits and lively your feelings now, you may meet with such reverses, with such long and sharp afflictions, as will sink your spirits. Many, 
not naturally inclined to melancholy, have, by overwhelming and repeated calamities, been sunk into this dark gulf. Number three, never use harsh language to your friends when under the disease of melancholy. This will only serve to fret and perplex them the more, but will never benefit them. I know that the counsel of some is to rebuke and chide them on all occasions, but I dare confidently say that such advisers never felt the disease themselves. For if they had, they would know that thus they do but pour oil into the flames and chafe and exasperate their wounds instead of healing them. John Dodd, 1549-1645, by reason of his mild, meek, and merciful spirit, was reckoned one of the fittest persons to deal with those thus afflicted. Never was any person more tender and compassionate, as all will be convinced who will read the accounts of Mr. Peacock and Mrs. Drake, both of whom were greatly relieved by his conversation. Number four. If you would possess any influence over your friends in this unhappy state of mind, you must be careful not to express any want of confidence in what they relate of their own feelings and distresses. On this point there is often a great mistake. When they speak of their frightful and distressing apprehensions, it is common for friends to reply, This is all imaginary. Nothing but fancy, an unfounded whim. Now the disease is a real one and their misery is as real as any experienced by man. It is true, their imagination is disordered, but this is merely the effect of a deeper disease. These afflicted persons never can believe that you have any real sympathy with their misery, or feel any compassion for them, unless you believe what they say. Number five, do not urge your melancholy friends to do what is out of their power. They are like persons whose bones are broken, and who are incapacitated for action. Their disease is accompanied with perplexing and tormenting thoughts. If you can innocently divert them, you would do them a great kindness. But do not urge them to anything which requires close and intent thinking. This will only increase the disease. But, you will ask, ought we not to urge them to hear the word of God? I answer, if they are so far gone in the disease as to be in continual unremitting anguish, they are not capable of hearing on account of the painful disorder of their minds. But, if their disorder has not come to such a distressing height, you may kindly and gently persuade them to attend on the preaching of the word. But beware of using a peremptory and violent method. The method pursued by John Dodd with Mrs. Drake should be imitated. Quote, the burden which overloaded her soul was so great that we never durst add any thereunto, but fed her with all encouragements, she being too apt to overcharge herself, and to despair upon any addition of fuel to that fire which was inwardly consuming her. And so, wherever she went to hear, notice was given to the minister officiating that he had such a hearer, and by this means she received no discouragement from hearing. End quote. Number six, do not attribute the effects of mere disease to the devil. Although I do not deny that he has an agency in producing some diseases, especially by harassing and disturbing the mind to such a degree that the body suffers with it, but it is very unwise to ascribe every feeling and every word of the melancholy man to Satan, 
whereas many of these are as natural consequences of bodily diseases as the symptoms of a fever, which a poor sufferer can no more avoid than the sick man can keep himself from sighing and groaning. Many will say to such an one, Why do you so pour over your case and thus ratify the devil? Whereas it is the very nature of the disease to cause such fixed musings. You might as well say to a man in a fever, Why are you not well? Why will you be sick? Some, indeed, suppose that the melancholy hug their disease and are unwilling to give it up. But you might as well suppose that a man would be pleased with lying on a bed of thorns or in a fiery furnace. No doubt the devil knows how to work on minds thus diseased, and by shooting his fiery darts he endeavors to drive them to utter despair. But if you persuade them that all which they experience is from the devil, you may induce the opinion in them that they are actually possessed of the evil one which has been the unhappy condition of some whose minds were disordered. I would not have you to bring a railing accusation even against the devil, neither must you falsely accuse your friends by saying that they gratify him. Number 7. Do not express much surprise or wonder at anything which melancholy persons say or do. What will not they say who are in despair of God's mercy? What will not they do who think themselves lost forever? You know that even such a man as Job cursed his day, so that the Lord charged him with darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Do not wonder that they give expression to bitter complaints. The tongue will always speak of the aching tooth. Their soul is sore vexed, and although they get no good by complaining, yet they cannot but complain to find themselves in such a doleful case. They can say with David, I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Yet they cannot forbear to groan and weep more, until their very eyes be consumed with grief. Let no sharp words of theirs provoke you to talk sharply to them. Sick people are apt to be peevish, and it would be a great weakness in you not to bear with them when you see that a long and sore disease has deprived them of their former good temper. Number 8. Do not tell them any frightful stories, nor recount to them the sad disasters which have overtaken others. Their hearts already meditate terror, and by every alarming thing of which they hear, they are the more terrified. And their disordered imagination is prepared to seize upon every frightful image which is presented. The hearing of sad things always causes them more violent agitations, yet you must avoid merriment and levity in their presence, for this would lead them to think that you have no sympathy with them, nor concern for them. A mixture of gravity and affableness will best suit them, and if I might advise, I would counsel parents not to put their children, who are naturally inclined to melancholy, to learning, or to any employment which requires much study, lest they should at length be preyed upon by their own thoughts. Number 9. Do not, however, think it needless to talk with them, but do not speak as if you thought their disease would be of a long continuance, for this is a prospect which appears most gloomy to the melancholy. Rather, encourage them to hope for speedy deliverance. Endeavor to revive their spirits by declaring that God can give them relief in a moment, and that He has often done so with others, that He can quickly heal their diseases and cause His amiable and reconciled face to shine upon them. Number 10. 
It will be useful to tell them of others who have been in the same state of suffering and yet have been delivered. It is indeed true that they who are depressed by such a load of grief are with difficulty persuaded that any were ever in such a condition as they are. They think themselves to be more wicked than Cain or Judas, and view their own cases to be entirely singular. It will, therefore, be important to relate real cases of deliverance from similar distresses and darkness. Several such cases have been known to me as that of Mr. Rosewell and also Mr. Porter, both ministers of the gospel. The latter was six years under the pressure of melancholy, yet both these experienced complete deliverance and afterwards rejoiced in the light of God's countenance. I myself was near two years in great pain of body and greater pain of soul and without any prospect of peace or help, and yet God recovered me by His sovereign grace and mercy. Robert Bruce, 1554-1631, minister in Edinburgh, was twenty years in terrors of conscience, and yet delivered afterwards. And so of many others, who after a dark and stormy night were blessed with the cheerful light of returning day. John Fox, in his book of martyrs, gives an account of a certain John Glover, who was worn and consumed with inward trouble for five years, so that he had no comfort in his food, nor in his sleep, nor in any enjoyment of life. He was so perplexed, as if he had been in the deepest pit of hell. And yet this good servant of God, after all these horrid temptations and buffetings of Satan, was delivered from all his trouble, and the effect was such a degree of mortification of sin, that he appeared as one already in heaven." Number 11. The next thing which you are to do for your melancholy friends is to pray for them. As they have no light or composure to pray for themselves, let your eyes weep for them in secret, and there let your souls melt in fervent holy prayers. You know that none but God alone can help them. Mr. Peacock said to John Dodd and his other friends, Take not the name of God in vain by praying for such a reprobate. Mr. Dodd replied, If God stir up your friends to pray for you, he will stir up himself to hear their prayers. You ought to consider that nothing but prayer can do them good. It is an obstinate disease that nothing else will overcome. Those who can cure themselves by resorting to wine and company were never under this disease. Number 12. Not only pray for them yourself, but engage other Christian friends also to pray for them. When many good people join their request together, their cry is more acceptable and prevalent. When the church united in prayer for Peter and James, he was soon delivered, and in the very time of their prayers. All believers have, through Christ, a great interest in heaven, and the Father is willing to grant what they unitedly and importunately ask in the name of His dear Son. I myself have been greatly helped by the prayer of others, and I heartily thank all those especially who set apart particular days to remember at a throne of grace my distressed condition. Blessed be God that He did not turn away His mercy from me, nor turn a deaf ear to their supplications." Number 13. Put your poor afflicted friends in mind continually of the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. Often impress on their minds that He is merciful and gracious, that as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far as His thoughts above their thoughts, His thoughts of mercy above their self-condemning guilty thoughts. 
Teach them as much as you can to look unto God by the great mediator for grace and strength, and not to too much pour over their own souls where there is so much darkness and unbelief, and turn away their thoughts from the decrees of God. Show them what great sinners God has pardoned, and encourage them to believe and to hope for mercy. When Mrs. Drake was in her deplorable state of darkness, she would send a description of her case to distinguished ministers, concealing her name, to know whether such a creature, without faith, hope, or love to God or man, hard-hearted, without natural affection, who had resisted and abused all means, could have any hope of going to heaven. Their answer was that such like and much worse might by the mercy of God be received into favor, converted and saved, which did much allay her trouble. For, said she, the fountain of all misery hath been that I sought that in the law which I should have found in the gospel, and for that in myself which is only to be found in Christ. From my own experience I can testify, says Mr. Rogers, that the mild and gentle way of dealing with such is the best. End quote. A volume might be written on the subject of religious melancholy, and such a volume is much needed, but it would be difficult to find a person qualified for the undertaken. We have some books written by pious casuists, and the subject is handled in medical treatises on insanity, but to do it justice, Physiological knowledge must be combined with an accurate acquaintance with the experience of Christians. Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy is one of the strangest books I ever read. For curious learning and classical quotations, it cannot be surpassed. As there is much originality of remark and frequent strokes of wit in the work, but very little valuable information on the subject of which it treats. The author seems to have been himself troubled with fits of melancholy, and, enjoying much learned leisure, amused his melancholy hours by searching after and heaping up much learning out of the common track. The spiritual physician, who has a cure of diseased souls, takes much less pains to inquire minutely and exactly into the maladies of his patients than is observable in physicians of the body. I have often admired the alacrity and perseverance with which medical students attend upon anatomical and physiological lectures, although often the exhibitions are extremely repulsive to our natural feelings. The patience and ingenuity with which the men of this profession make experiments are highly worthy of imitation. Many of our young preachers, when they go forth on their important errand, are poorly qualified to direct the doubting conscience or to administer safe consolation to those troubled in spirit. And in modern preaching there is little account made of the various distressing cases of deep affliction under which many serious persons are suffering. If we want counsel on subjects of this kind, we must go back to the old writers. But as there is now small demand for such works, they are fast sinking into oblivion and their place is not likely to be supplied by any works which the prolific press now pours forth. It is, however, a pleasing circumstance that the writings of so many of our old English divines have recently been reprinted in London, but still many valuable treatises are destined to oblivion. The only object which I have in view in introducing the subject is to inquire what connection there is between real experimental religion and melancholy. And I must in the first place endeavor to remove a prevalent prejudice 
that in all religious persons there is a strong tendency to melancholy. Indeed, there are not a few who confound these two things so completely that they have no other idea of becoming religious than sinking into a state of perpetual gloom. Such persons as these are so far removed from all just views of the nature of religion that I shall not attempt at present to correct their errors. There are others who entertain the opinion that deep religious impressions tend to produce that state of mind called melancholy, and not only so, but they suppose that in many cases insanity is a consequence of highly raised religious affections. The fact cannot be denied that religion is often a subject which dwells on the minds of both the melancholy and the insane. But I am of opinion that we are here in danger of reversing the order of nature, and putting the effect in the place of the cause. Religion does not produce melancholy, but melancholy turns the thoughts to religion. Persons of a melancholy temperament seize on such ideas as are most awful, and which furnish the greatest opportunity of indulging in despondency and despair. Sometimes, however, it is not religion which occupies the minds and thoughts of the melancholy, but their own health, which they imagine without reason to be declining, or their estates, which they apprehend to be wasting away, and abject poverty and beggary stare them in the face. Not infrequently this disease alienates the mind entirely from religion, and the unhappy victim of it refuses to attend upon any religious duties, or to be present where they are performed. Frequently it assumes a form of monomania, or a fixed misapprehension in regard to some one thing. The celebrated and excellent William Cooper labored for years under one of the most absurd hallucinations respecting a single point, and in that point his belief, though invincible, was repugnant to the whole of his religious creed. He imagined that he had received from the Almighty a command at a certain time when in a fit of insanity to kill himself, and as a punishment for disobedience he had forfeited a seed in paradise. And so deep was this impression that he would attend on no religious worship, public or private, and yet at this very time took a lively interest in the advancement of Christ's kingdom, and his judgment was so sound on other matters that such men as John Newton and Thomas Scott were in the habit of consulting with them on all difficult points. The case of this man of piety and genius was used by the enemies of religion, and particularly by the enemies of Calvinism, as an argument against the creed which he had embraced, whereas his disease was at the worst before he had experienced anything of religion, or had embraced the tenets of Calvin. And let it be remembered that it was by turning his attention to the consolations of religion that his excellent physician was successful in restoring his mind to tranquility and comfort. And the world will one day learn that, of all the remedies for this malady, the pure doctrines of grace are, are the most effectual to resuscitate the melancholy mind. This is, in fact, a bodily disease by which the mind is influenced and darkened. Thus, it was received by the ancient Greeks, for the term is compounded by two Greek words which signify black bile. How near they were to the truth in assigning the physical cause which produces the disease, I leave to others to determine. Casuists have often erred egregiously by referring all such cases to mental or moral causes. It is probable, 
even when the disease is brought on by strong impressions on the mind, that by these physical derangement occurs. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.